Dear listeners, I welcome you to the International Radio Day and a program contributed by the Radio X of Frankfurt in Germany. My own program called the FIM uh, Ravens Hour, the FIM Rabenstunde, is rather international in its scope itself because ever since I left Frankfurt, where our station is situated, I contributed my programs from all over the world, basically, from wherever I lived at the time, be it New York City or Vienna, potentially from Mars, which didn't happen so far. And I concern myself in the programs and in the program today as well with issues of aesthetic nature, especially applied to music.
first time in history we live in a period where we have actual recordings and we will have a pretty good idea how the music sounded at the time and with improving recording technology it became almost like a simulation of actual music pretty much like pornography simulating whatever arouses people but it cannot replace the act of sex 
So with music, I would insist that it's important to recognize the difference. And that, that is important because I will concern myself with subtlety. So why am I insisting on subtlety when there's even a political implication? I think it's very important to, to remember that the, the main feature of modern-day political development is the outrageous insubtlety of pretty much all populist movements. People like Donald Trump being the epitome of insubtlety, or Erdogan owe their success primarily to a population which was raised to expect that everything ought to be loud and everything ought to be rough and that diplomacy and actual negotiation, all these subtle maneuvers, they should be excluded because people couldn't relate to that. They, they can't cope with subtlety. They, they distrust subtlety. So I, th I think that insisting on subtlety in art, especially in music, is crucial as, as a means of protecting oneself against populism and against fascism. I think it's very important to remember that politics are, to, to a large extent, also aesthetic. Like the, the fascist movements have a... You might not like it, and, and Leni Riefenstahl or Richard Wagner are certainly uh, disgusting in, in aesthetic terms, in any terms, but they are an expression of the aesthetical ideals of the Nazis, and and it's uh, it's very crucial to their to their movement. It's uh, unless you you know Wagner, you, you you cannot understand Hitler, and Hitler would never have been anything like Hitler if it w wouldn't be for for the influence of Wagner. So all the all the expressionism, especially the expressionist theater of the twenties, very important for Hitler. These exaggerated, unsubtle gestures, the the um, the stark contrasts, the the lack of negotiation between nuances, that is all expressionism applied in politics. And you might say it's corrupted. Yeah, of course, the political impetus of Beckmann was a very different one. We know that. We we acknowledge that that Beckmann wasn't a fascist politically speaking, but as a painter. Um, I think it's problematic to allow yourself to to undo the subtlety of history. Now, if you look at, at 20th century art, especially in the second half, let's say, or from the, the 30s, um, you find more and more artists who try to cover their, their brush. There are a couple of exceptions, like Picasso, who was very bold and obviously very self-possessed, and he was still wielding the brush like it was a sword, like in a, in a bullfight or something. Uh, and very proud, and it was supposed to be a, a virile thing. It was supposed to be a it's almost a chauvinist thing to, to, to paint like that. And then there were all these people working on, like Mondrian, working, who was an, 
a fantastic painter and it had a fantastic brush technique, but he was hiding it more and more, ending up with these strips of of uh, of tape glued to the canvas. Uh, because he, he was embarrassed by brush stroke. The subtlety is so enormous in hiding everything that makes art interesting that you have to look very hard and then you realize there is something left. There's something left, just a minuscule change. It's like in a, in a, in a normal drug that you would have very tiny um, fluctuations of color and asymmetries of pattern brush and, and what Feldman called crippled symmetry, very important, subtle concept of neither symmetry nor asymmetry and something in between, between categories. Now, finally back to music or forward to music.
what is subtlety in music and why is subtlety in music important? I will give you a couple of examples. Subtlety in music is important because it is a manner of self-cultivation, as Confucian scholars may call it. And in, in Confucian Chinese literary tradition, the education with the brush is the essential thing. In Kunze's own day, in the 6th century before the Christian era, 2,500 years ago, the brush wasn't an important instrument yet. But Kunze himself is talking about music all the time. So he heard the music played at this chord, an ancient music even at that time, and he forgot the taste of meat for three weeks because it was so overwhelmingly beautiful. Let's say beautiful or impressive or morally upright. That's what he felt the music was expressing. And he was playing instruments himself, like the, the stone chimes. He's described playing them in one chapter. And in another, he plays the sither si, which is a 25 silk string board sither of ancient China. And later, people have claimed he also played the, the sither tin. There's no trace of that in the actual uh, contemporary writing, but it w was later b becoming the favorite instrument of Chinese scholars, and that's the most subtle music you could possibly imagine. It was carried so far, even by the 5th century, that some of its proponents claimed that not playing at all was the, the best music. And having no strings attached, <laughs> even these very soft silk strings that you barely touch and that you listen to fading forever, even that was considered then not the, 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 the utmost degree of subtlety, and subtlety was paramount. And I think this is a subtlety, and then it's not subtle anymore if you just say, quit. Okay, that's not subtle, that's very drastic. So... By following the, the subtlety to an excessive degree, the Chinese literary tradition rid itself of music. And music was no longer important. In Kunze's time, it was the most important. On the other hand... Studying and practicing calligraphy, brush work, with ink, paper, and brush, was the standard occupation of every Chinese educated person for millennia. And the degree of subtlety they achieved in handling the brush is staggering. In order to become an official in the, say, Han to Ming dynasties, you would be expected to have a very good brush technique, <laughs> which is for us in Europe or America, that's a, a, an outlandish concept. I mean, with an architect, you might consider that if we could draw freehand, that might be good, but even that is disputed, and Gropius was an example of how that even that was abolished. And painters who just described their painting over telephone. And in music. Now we have this in music as well. 
uh, so-called producers who don't play any instruments, who, who sit down at, at, at computers and just assemble music, like other people are assembling cars. And of course, I mean, if you want to assemble a successful car, that means a technically working car and a reliable car, and maybe even fast car. So you, you draw that. You have designers and engineers who draw the parts, and then the parts are made, and then they are assembled. But in modern music, and I don't mean modern as, as a political utopian concept as still maintained by early Stockhausen, but I mean nowadays, contemporary music, um, products of the cultural industry, you don't touch the instrument, you, you have your samples ready. So people tend to assume that other people's music isn't as subtle because it's not concerned with what they are concerned with. I'll give you an example. Most European people and, and American European-American writers would automatically assume this to be more subtle. than that. Or this being a straightforward arpeggio from Mozart's clarinet quintet, even though played on a B-flat clarinet for the purpose of demonstration here and comparison, a modern one. No, it's not quite modern. It's from the 1920s. It's an Albert system instrument from France of the, and the, from the 20s. Um, but this would be more subtle than that. What Mozart does with his motive is very subtle and spectacular. But the motive as such is rather dull. It's just an arpeggio or a couple of diatonic notes. But the scale as such, I don't think we could possibly argue that the scale is subtle. The way it's treated, the, the, the motives are, are used in the, in the pursuit of the composition, the techniques of formal development in the music are um, very subtle with, with Mozart. Whilst in jazz, I recognize there's a certain shortcoming of this kind of developing technique that in Schoenberg was developed to an extent, picking up from Brahms, I think, most of it, that led to constant variation and, and eventually to the 12-tone technique where every note in the composition is thematic and everything relates to everything else. But this isn't anything that jazz ever managed to assimilate, unfortunately. I'm not aware. I mean, there were a couple of, of composers in jazz tradition in the 50s especially who studied composition pretty seriously, 
Like Jimmy Jufra, for example, he was a very advanced jazz composer. But still, I mean, nothing, I mean, it was in the 50s, nothing compared to the early Stockhausen. Or, in a very different way, John Cage. When they eventually try to incorporate this kind of subtlety, compositional procedures, it, it turned out to be a fake, because you couldn't do that. On the other hand, there was a, a group of British composers in the 60s, like Michael Finnessy and Brian Fernihaw, late 60s, I should say, onwards, who, who wrote out with the most advanced notational technique and compositional procedures, wrote out something that sounds like pretty well-articulated free jazz. Then, of course, largely depending on who's playing it. But if James Clapperton played Michael Finnis's piano music, it it had a certain resemblance with uh, with free jazz piano playing, but it was infinitely better. Whilst the African American composers in the Art Ensemble of Chicago or Anthony Braxton. Ornette Coleman, all these people, failed miserably to even maintain the standards that jazz had already achieved in disease, big band writing, or things like that, or Lester Young's way of playing the, the tenor saxophone. It was all squandered. And then some fragments of European technique were, were reintroduced in order to make it look more fancy, a terrible fake, very unsubtle. Do I still sympathize with these people? Yeah, sure, but they still failed. I also like people who fail or sympathize with them. It's it just it shouldn't serve as a model to, to, to carry on with that failure. So that didn't work. The, the so-called free jazz didn't work. I shall now give you some examples of subtlety and lack of subtlety, mostly at the same time. Adorno's concept of the difference between uh, what he called musica and musicant. He would say it's musicantish if a composer or musician would stress certain aspects of the music over others. So if the music is very rich and complex in rhythmical terms, but having a very primitive melody or form or timbre, then he would say this is just one aspect of the music being developed, so it's musicantish. And that's a derogative term. But still, there, I, I couldn't think of any music where all the parameters are equally uh, developed. Mm. 
I know that Pierre Boulez and early Stockhausen, they claimed to integrate all these parameters and come up with the most complex music where everything, harmony, timbre, rhythm, was treated with the same compositional techniques. Still, if you listen to the music, even played very well, you will notice that however many degrees of tone duration they discriminated in their compositional techniques and the performer actually sometimes manages to reproduce them in actual performance, not often, but sometimes they are pretty accurate. And then the dynamics, they're, they're having 12 degrees of dynamics from four times piano to four times 40 or something. Even if the player actually is capable of, of, of representing them accurately, which is very rarely the case. And even if the compositional procedures are well applied, as, say, in Stockhausen's first five piano pieces from the 50s, early 50s, even then, in that case, the piano pieces, they would, wouldn't have any timbre operations because the timbre of the piano would always be the same. If you hit a key, it's just the piano sound. whether you played Brahms or Stockhausen. That is different with John Cage, for example, who actually worked on the sounds of the piano. And it's different in some jazz pianists like Thelonious Monk, who changed the, the timbre of the piano. By the way they played it. But that's not part of the writing in Stockhausen's early piano music. So there's at least one important parameter that is not addressed by the compositional procedures at all. And then the others, however well they are worked out on paper, and even performed well, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that having 12 degrees of duration results in great rhythmic complexity. It might be quite variegated, but if you listen to a good balafon player from Burkina Faso or other parts of West Africa, you will find that even though he has much less pitches and he doesn't have this in integral serial compositional technique, he has other techniques that we don't know because they're secret and they're obviously very sophisticated. So, But he creates a rhythm that is infinitely more complex than what results in a very good performance of Stockhausen's early piano pieces. In other respects, they're pretty advanced. So now, I, I, therefore, I have to give you examples. And the first example will be the most subtle form I ever encountered in music. It's very short, but that's not, not what makes it subtle. It could be longer. That would, it, it might be even more subtle, but that's probably not possible for humans to achieve. Listen to that form. <laughs>
That was a chamber orchestral fragment written by Arnold Schoenberg in 1911, played by the ensemble Die Reihe in Vienna, under the direction of Friedrich Zerrer in the 80s. Very good performance, live. There are other very, very complex aspects, the harmony in the piece. But Schoenberg would always insist that the harmony was only a constructual means to achieve form. He was concerned with form, and he inherited that from, from Brahms primarily. And he created a new form for every piece he wrote. Even when he went back to preconceived forms, even like a suite, Baroque suite with a musette. He wrote a musette in 1921 or so. But it's not a musette as it was originally conceived for, for a bagpipe instrument in France. It's a very different kind of musette. For example, it transposes the, the drone of a fifth into a drone of a flatted fifth. So uh, still, the, he created a new form, but in this particular instance, from 1911, unpublished work of his, abandoned work, and left three of these fragments, the, the last of which isn't finished. So uh, this is the most advanced form I ever encountered in music. It's a music that is developed out of itself, of, of its own material. It's a little drawing, if you will. It has in between a very organic development where everything follows out of each other in an unpredictable but very organic way. At the same time, the rhythm and the timbres in the piece are rather conventional. The metrics are very conventional. And they're only chromatic pitches. If any of the pitches isn't chromatic, then it's a mistake. It's ill-played. It's not part of the composition. Unlike in this instance. This was a little prelude played on the Sither Komuro, a silk string flat Sither, and the flute Degum, which is a transverse flute made of bamboo and a little membrane which is buzzing. Uh, it's very difficult to achieve the precise degree of buzzing required in the music. Played under the uh, direction of Kim Kisu in the 60s in Korea. Korean court music, unspeakably subtle music. Uh, in what respect? It's only a number of pitches, it's five pitches really, but they are changing, they are fluctuating. The pitches itself are moving. That's very important. It's like a brush rather than 
applying a ruler, drawing lines with a ruler. That's more like the European concept of the piano is more like a typewriter in musical, whilst in the Confucian tradition, which was prevailing in Korea at the time, you would have a brush, and you play your instruments with a brush. So the, the, the pitches are bended, they are moving, they are flexible. Then the form is very short. It's maybe not unlike the Schoenberg form we encountered in the earlier piece, in the chamber orchestral piece I just played, because there is a motive that is uh, the uh, definitive motive of the mode, and everything else follows from there only for a very brief period of time because then it seems to be exhausted and then it dies. So it's, it's like an ephemeral uh, organism that breathes and then it dies. But in the, in the time in between, it is very lively and very interesting are the micro-rhythms. It is not a rhythm as in the African tradition. Even though it's quite funky, it is, it's metrically vague because the, the tempo of the Confucian music is mostly extraordinarily slow. But still there is a micro-rhythm. It's more like the, the articulation of the notes and the phrasing which have a certain impetus and the interplay between the instruments. Then the timbres. The timbres are crucial. The timbres are in the in the Komungo Siddha. Uh, they are variegated by playing the same note on different strings, but pressing different stops. On the Komungo Siddha there are st stops. So you can change the, the timbre, but... And then, of course, you, you have the, the plectrum, which is a stick, and you, you can hit the strings in very different ways, and it makes a huge difference with silk strings especially. They, they are quite sensitive towards the change of timbre by different ways of attacking them. And then the, there are the accents, and some of them are very strong. And these accents have a rhythmical, a formal, and a metrical uh, significance, but they also change the timbre. So we have, in a way, we have a music in which these aspects, these parameters, if you like, are very well integrated because every one of them contributes to the other. I mean, you articulate rhythm by changing the timbre. And I know this concept from jazz. I don't know this concept from European music. It might happen, it certainly happens, that if you play on a double bass louder or on any string instrument with your bow, it, it changes the, the timbre as well as the, the dynamics. But I haven't yet encountered an example where this is used in a constructive way. It is mostly a defect. That is why European aesthetics in music have led to the uh, the MIDI technology, where the same sound sample is transposed and it, it is played back louder or softer. Grant you that in, in more modern, more advanced systems, like digital grand pianos, they sample more sounds and more dynamics, so they, they take account of the changing timbre of a grand piano if you, if you hit it harder. 
But that's a nostalgia. It is not that any composer uses that in composition. It's impossible to use it. It could be used now on digital pianos. You could play uh, the the timbre of a soft node loud. You just amplify it. I'm not aware that anybody is doing that, and I'm, I don't feel tempted to do it myself because the sounds are very boring and are dead because they don't move, and that for me is very important. That's what I like in this example of, of, of Confucian music from Korea. And then there is the following example where I think we also have a very interesting blend of parameters. <laughs> of original Jelly Roll Blues by Jelly Roll Morton himself and his Red Hood Peppers from 1926. And 
it is the best example I know of jazz. You don't come closer to what jazz was originally conceived of because Jelly Roll Morton conceived it. He was the first jazz composer and the Jelly Roll Blues was one of the first important compositions and he wrote it in jazz. I mean, yeah? King Porter's number was probably older, but we don't have actual proof of that. But with Jelly Roll Blues, we know it's from 1915 at least. It's probably slightly older, but 1915 at least. And the recording is from 1926. It's a band recording. It's very well played because Jelly Roll handpicked all the players, like Omar Simeon was the ultimate Creole clarinet player. He was so good. pretty much everything, and that's important in jazz, especially from that time, but still, I think, today. A crucial recording, because Jelly Roll insisted on having the drums and the string bass recorded as well, which was considered impossible at the time. And you hear the people play their parts, deviate from their parts at times when it's possible and, and, and uh, useful. And it swings like mad. You have the first instances of walking bass, string bass played pizzicato, four to the bar. that they, they came up with in New Orleans having been recorded for the first time and in a well-integrated orchestra with a very well-conceived composition. It's a blues at the same time. It's already an advanced blues with extra changes and part writing. And it has a great form devised by, by Jelly Roll, which might not be as advanced as Schoenberg's form, because it's strophic, so it, it repeats itself to some extent. But outside the intro, which in itself is interesting, because it, it's in a different key and is a different instrumentation, and everything is very strange. Then there is the, the main motive, which is actually played on the guitar, very strange at the time especially, because the guitar normally in jazz is just an accompanying instrument at that time, mind you. Uh, but Johnny Sincere was one of the best guitar players of all time, I think, and, and he managed to play both the motive, the theme, if you will, and the accompaniment, and he was versatile at that. Yes, uh, one of the Jelly Roll's numbers that I always like.
And then the, the blues is varied, and there are different solos, and the solos are part of the composition. It's not just blowing, I mean, as in later jazz, that you say, so now take a chorus. Or at that time they would have said, take a Boston, a very strange expression for an ad-lib chorus. <laughs> Jelly Roll had conceived these solos as part of the composition. Very importantly, the clarinet solo. Omar Simeon plays it, but he plays it in his own way. And of course, Jelly Roll hired the person whose own way would suit the music best. So that's like Arnold Rosé played Gustav Mahler. So you couldn't just pick anybody. It's a specialization. It's not unheard of in European music. But the degree of personal quality in the playing, especially in this particular recording of Kid Ori's trombone part, it's actually known that Kid Ori wouldn't play the notes written for him, but Jelly Roll would concede to say, well, you're the great Kid Ori. You, you invented that music along with me, so play the way you play it. So th this degree is, is very special. And still it's integrated into the composition. There's no deviation from the, the compositional content. That might not be quite as subtle as, say, in, in early Stockhausen or in Michael Finnessy's or um, Brian Fernihel's writing, where the, the notation as such is much more advanced. Uh, the rhythms might be more advanced in many regards in the bebop era. differentiated short values long values but if you listen to the way these people play it especially jelly roll himself on the piano it is unspeakably subtle how in micro terms everything pretty much every aspect of the music is varied by the musicians so the timbres fluctuate quite a bit depending on the instrument of course uh, but the micro timing especially of jelly roll and the bass and the, the drums spectacularly subtle but it's there it's it is part of the composition if you play that entirely straight or you have a a MIDI player play it back from the notation as it was published at the time, it is a very different thing. It's wrong. And the way people 
even including uh, Wynton Marsalis, Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, play it. Well-informed people, or even the Nighthawks of uh, Vince Giordano, with great musicians. Nobody even approaches the subtlety in this recording. Nobody I know. And I know quite a few people who try that. So there's the subtlety in it. And then, on the other hand, there's a lot of conventional material in it, like the cadences, the uh, the harmony being quite consonant. There are additional dissonances in it added at times, but nothing compared to, say, Thelonious Monk, or especially to, to Schoenberg's music, where all the dissonances are liberated and emancipated from the consonances. That, that's, it's a far cry. So we could say this music is, is not quite as far developed in harmonic terms. But in pretty much every other sense, I would maintain it is a music that doesn't have its equal anywhere else because so many aspects of it have been emancipated to a degree that we cannot even put in words now. Because as soon as, I mean, if you speak to professional musicians and you show them the parts, they will have a hard time to, to fathom where the subtleties are and what they should do with their part, like what, what Omar Simeon and these people did in the recording. And then, of course, if you hire a clarinet player, what kind of clarinet does he play? In, in what way? I mean, Omar Simeon played an Albert system clarinet, like the one I, I played earlier in the, in the examples I, I gave you. I took it from him, basically, and from him and, and Barnaby Gar and other great Creole players, that, to try this instrument, and I found, well, yes, actually, it is a superior instrument. It's hard to play, very hard to play, because the, the sound holes, are, the spacing is, is not very convenient, but the sound is superior. If you practice on it, yeah, you can play like Omar Simeon. Nobody else ever could, but it's possible, it's proven. But if you hire anybody today, you, you have great clarinet players today who could play virtually anything, the Chute de Car of Brian Fernios, but they couldn't produce a sound like that. Nobody can. And with that, uh, I will play the recording once more, and I say goodbye to you. I hope that you will tune in sometime, if you do have some German speaking skill, or listening skill, rather. Unfortunately, as I said, the program will be in German in Radio X. Radio X.